Seeing how it's Father's Day and it's only 11 o'clock, there is a possibility you might get out early. Nah. I didn't say how large that possibility was, now did I? Indeed. Well, nothing, you've heard it mentioned several times about hypocrisy this morning leading up to this message, and really probably nothing provokes us more than hypocrisy. We really don't like it, do we? We despise it in politics. We despise it in business. We despise it in law enforcement. We despise it in education. We despise it in entertainment. We even despise it in our sports figures. We just do not like hypocrisy. But the sober reality of the whole thing is, although we detest it, we despise it, we hate it, the sobering reality is we're often blind to it in ourselves. We see it in others, and we don't like what we see. But we're somehow biased, self-biased, and blind to it in our own selves. You know, as much as we dislike hypocrisy in the fields of politics and business and law enforcement and so forth, I think we despise it even more in the religious realm, don't we? Nothing seems to rise even to the level of the religious hypocrite. Just can't stand that. The religious leader who is telling you how to live and then we find out that they don't live in that same way themselves, right? Ancient Jews had a proverb, physician, heal thyself. If you're going to dispense medicine to others, Take it yourself. We really, really don't like it in the religious realm. I'm sure we've all heard at one time or another the, the accusation that Christians are hypocrites, right? Oh, you Christians, you're hypocrites. You're hypocrites. I think there are a number of possible reasons why people make that kind of statement. Perhaps they they say that because they're they're seeking to avoid dealing with their own sin. So it's, it's kind of a statement of deflection. When it gets a little uncomfortable in terms of self-evaluation and a Christian friend or loved one is speaking to you about the gospel, then the way to avoid having to deal with the reality of your own sin is to sort of thrust it back in their face and say, you Christians, you're all hypocrites. You're all hypocrites. I would never, never want to join that church. You're just full of hypocrites. There's always room for one more, right? There's always room for one more, we would say. But yeah, I think people, I think people use that kind of an accusation to deflect, having to deal with the issues of their own soul. I think other people, though, sort of use that statement that Christians are hypocrites because they, they misunderstand exactly what the Christian life is all about. There's a bumper sticker that was popular for a while that says that Christians are not perfect, they are just forgiven, right? Christians are not perfect, they're just forgiven. And in in an economy of words, which bumper stickers, of course, have to have, there there is the the core of the Christian faith, the gospel message, is, is encapsulated in those few words. The gospel is not that trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be perfect. You are now perfect from henceforth. 
At least that's certainly only a, a piece of what it means to follow Christ. We don't, we don't claim that to believe on Jesus Christ that from that moment forward we never sin again. That's not our claim. In fact, what the gospel claims is, is that we are hopelessly lost in sin. That every thought, every word, every deed has, has been infected with this deadly disease called sin. And that we have no hope. No hope. But God condescended. God, in His mercy, reached out to us. He he sent His only begotten Son who was born of a virgin and, and lived as a man among men. And that He perfectly fulfilled the law. That there was no sin in Him. And that He then willingly offered Himself to die as a substitute for us. And that by faith in His substitutionary death, we receive a pardon from God. God pardons us. The Gospel further says that because Jesus is perfect, that the grave could not hold Him, right? So on the third day, He he rose from the dead and He lives forevermore. And when we place faith in Him, we become spiritually united to Him and we share in His resurrection life. Eternal life becomes ours. The gospel further says that when we receive this gift of eternal life, that the the very Holy Spirit of God takes up residence within us. God Himself takes up residence in our soul. And then He begins a, a process in us of transformation. It's not immediate it's not full it's not complete but it but it begins and and it's unstoppable it's relentless slowly sometimes even imperceptibly we are transformed from the inside out our motives the way we view the world what is important to us slowly begins to change and be conformed to what God would have. I mean, the big theological term is sanctification, right? That process where God works out what He has worked in us and, and He transforms us. The Gospel says that, that this Christian life from the, from the moment of salvation forward, that yes, we are forgiven of our sin, but, but there is this ongoing war, struggle, That's what the Bible calls the old man. That is that that former manner of thinking and behaving. It continues to wage war against us. The Spirit has granted us victory. When we we walk in obedience to the Spirit, when when we submit ourselves to the Spirit, the Word, we actually begin to live in a way pleasing to God. It's when we forget what God has done in us, when we, when we forget the gospel of Jesus Christ, when we forget our identity as Christians and we, we fall back into the old way of doing things, we find ourselves succumbing to sin, old pattern, patterns, old habits. Our full, our complete, our final freedom from that struggle still awaits us, doesn't it? We sang about it here just a few minutes ago. I'll fly away, the song says, right? Christ will return to take us home. And when He takes us home, He will complete what He has begun in us. That that struggle against the old man will cease. We will be made perfect, suited to live forever in the presence of God our Creator who is Himself perfect. But in the in-between times, until that day, we remain saint and sinner, don't we? This is the Christian gospel. This is what it means to follow Christ. We're not perfect, but we are forgiven. 
And we are being changed. We are being changed. So some people say, oh, you Christians, you're hypocrites, but it's for the purposes of deflection. Others say, you Christians are hypocrites because it's of a misunderstanding of what the Christian message really claims to be. But I think lastly, there's another possibility why the skeptic would say that you Christians are hypocrites and it would be because he or she has encountered blatant hypocrisy among those who claim to follow Christ. And that's the sad part, isn't it? That's the sad reality. Probably an all too frequent reality. And that's the background for this morning's sermon. Open your Bibles up to Matthew chapter 6 and let's take a look at what Jesus would say with regard to hypocrisy. What kind of allowances does he make for it? Matthew chapter 6. I want to look with you this morning. We're going to be looking at at verses 1 through 6 and then verses 16 through 18. So we're going to skip over 7 through 15. We'll come back to that starting next week. But as we look at verses 1 through 6 and then 16 through 18, we'll find three examples of religious hypocrisy so that by the Holy Spirit's help, we can, we can pursue the holiness that should mark our own religious devotion. Jesus gives three examples. Let me read them for you. Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. So when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that they may be honored by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving will be in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. When you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners, so that they may be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Verse 16. Whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that your fasting will not be noticed by men, but by your Father who is in secret." And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Three examples. Giving, praying, fasting. Now, I think as as we come at these three examples, it's necessary to begin with an understanding of what it means when the Bible talks about hypocrisy. A hypocrite. What is a hypocrite? The word originally referred to those who were involved in the theater, Greek and Roman theater. And what they would do is they would have a mask that they would hold in front of their face as they played various characters on the stage. And the the mask would conceal their identity. and, And thus is the origin of the word hypocrite. One who conceals who they truly are. Three times Jesus uses it here in this section, chapter 6 of the Sermon on the Mount. He uses it again, interestingly, the same word, in chapter 7 and verse 5, where he says, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, right? 
juice there refers to someone who is a critic and yet does not criticize themselves. The word hypocrite further appears in Matthew's gospel in chapter 15 and verse 7. So it's worth a peek. So turn over there, Matthew 15 and verse 7. Notice verse 1 as we pick up the context. Then some Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem. Down to verse 7. You hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you. Chapter 22, Matthew's Gospel, 22 and verse 18. Notice in verse 16, they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. And uh, looking up to verse 15, it's the Pharisees again. So down here in verse 18, Jesus perceived their malice and said to them, Why are you testing me, you hypocrites? Chapter 23, there are six occurrences. I won't go through them all with you, but they appear in the woe section beginning in verse 13. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Another name for you is hypocrites. And so it's really interesting as you go through Matthew's gospel that the use of the word hypocrites, you can turn back to chapter 6, the use of the word hypocrites is always spoken of the Pharisees and the scribes. They are the hypocrites that Jesus calls out. That's true here in chapter 6. It's true in chapter 7, and it's true in those other references that we looked at. It is the scribes, it is the Pharisees. And the interesting thing is, they are the most outwardly religious, the most faithful in terms of doing religious activities of any group in the nation of Israel. If you wanted to be considered righteous, and indeed for the people of that day, if you wanted to be righteous, you were to imitate what it meant to be a Pharisee and a scribe. Now, it's come down to us. We use the word, you're a Pharisee, right? And, and that's an insult because we've come to associate Pharisee with hypocrite. And that's indeed what they were. They were hypocrites. It was these men with whom Jesus had his most violent and, and passionate conflicts. The Pharisees and the scribes, the hypocrites. The interesting thing for me, though, is that, is that the Word doesn't necessarily talk about an insincerity on their part or a, or a consciously acting out. Perhaps in, in chapter 22, verse 18, you might see it that way. And that's sort of the way we think of a hypocrite today, right? Is that they are, they're consciously acting in a certain way that they are not. But, but the, the majority of the uses here in Matthew's gospel is, is not that, that there's a conscious effort to deceive. And see, if we, if we think that way, if we think about hypocrisy biblically as a, as a conscious effort to deceive, then it's, then it's easy to say, well, I'm not a hypocrite. I mean, I'm not really out to deceive anyone. The difference, and it, it may seem like not that big a deal on the surface, but, it, but it's really significant, is that the hypocrisy is that they have a false sense of values as to what pleases God. And that's what leads them to their behavior. They're not out to deceive people. They, don't, they have a false sense of, of what God values. In a sense, you could say they are self-deceived. They are self-deceived. They do what they do because they think it pleases God. And in that, they are self-deceived, and in that, they are hypocrites. Here in the Sermon on the Mount, these people are, are, are actually performing legitimate religious duties. They are giving. They are praying. They are fasting. These are things that, that God has, has commended 
commanded them to do and commended upon them. It's why they do them. Is where the problem lies. Their motives are corrupt, but they don't even know it. Later, Jesus speaks to them. He said they're like the blind leading the blind, right? The result will be that they will both fall into a pit. Matthew chapter 15 and verse 14. So this distinction, and, I, and the reason I take the time to, to labor away with that is because it's really important for us this morning as we come to this text, if we're going to get anything out of it at all, if we are going to really allow the Spirit of God to probe deep into our hearts, then we need to understand the kind of hypocrisy that Jesus is calling out here. It's the hypocrisy of self-deception. Beloved, we are just as susceptible just as susceptible to religious self-deception. John Calvin, in his Institutes of the Christian Religion, he says the following, The human heart has so many crannies where vanity hides, so many holes where falsehood lurks, is so decked out with deceiving hypocrisy that it often dupes itself. Calvin had a way with words. The human heart often dupes itself. That's true of my heart, and that's true of yours. It's interesting to me here in chapter 6 that each of the three examples Jesus chooses are, are sort of common, everyday, run-of-the-mill religious activities. Nothing spectacular about what these people are doing. To be a devoted Jew of the first century is to participate in these activities. So the hypocrisy doesn't lie in the participation in the activity. Hypocrisy, the self-deception, lies in the motive behind the activity. The other thing we ought to know Remember is that the fact that hypocrisy lies close at hand in these activities does not invalidate the activity. The solution to hypocrisy here is not to just stop giving. Simple, right? Oh, okay, well, if, if I give like this, then I'm going to be a hypocrite. I just won't give. Oh, I, I'm not sure I can pray without being a hypocrite. I just won't pray. And we have to worry about fasting because we don't do it anyway, Right? We'll talk about fasting in a minute. It's really, really interesting and insightful. So we can't get off the hook that easily. We can't, we can't just say that we we'll just won't participate in the activity. That's how we'll resolve the issue of our hypocrisy. It'd be like somebody saying that I, I don't come to church. I'm a Christian, but I won't come to church because it's, it's filled with hypocrites. See, so the way I avoid hypocrisy is I just don't come. That's not a solution. It's not a solution. The proper way to confront hypocrisy is not to change the activity, but to purify the motive that lies behind the activity. And only the Spirit of God can do that. So when we go through this, what this should do for us is throw us upon the mercy of God. If we approach this as a checklist, I don't do that, and I don't do that, and I haven't done that yet, Right? Clear. We've missed it. We've missed it. It's to throw ourselves to the mercy of God because it's an impossible situation that requires the Spirit of God to do something amazing in us to purify and transform our motives. All right? So don't, don't quit the activity. That's no solution. Call on God to cleanse your heart as you participate. Now, let's take a look at these activities together. The first is false generosity. First activity is false generosity. Now, there's a lot of overlapping language in the three examples, and I think hopefully you, you sort of 
saw that as we read them together. That's intentionally why I left out verses 7 through 15, by the way. It kind of breaks the flow a little bit and, and um, obscures the, the common language that exists in these three examples. The great commonality of vocabulary that is used. So as we look at the three examples, I want to I look at the three of them under a very simple structure. So there won't be a different structure for each one. Same structure, all three examples. All right? The structure is very simple. You can jot it down if you want to. It's practice, it is prescription, and it is promise. Jesus will, will illuminate the practice. He will give the proper prescription as to how to deal with that practice, and then he will attach a promise for those who purify their hearts. Okay? So practice, prescription, promise. The first example is the false generosity. Verse 2, so when you give to the poor, when you give to the poor, Jesus assumes the act of charitable giving here. Do you see it? So when you give, not if you give, not you should give, when you give, he's assuming this act of charitable giving. Now this is because in in the days before government oversight and mandate and control of the welfare system, it was incumbent upon the people of God to care for the poor. It was woven into the fabric of what it meant to be a a member of the nation of Israel and a follower of God. As God had been generous with them, they were to be generous with those who were less fortunate than themselves those that were destitute. We don't live in that day and age. Our government has sort of taken that away from us, and now we've, we've detached it. And so it's hard for us to, to sort of get into that mindset of charitable giving. But charitable giving in the New Testament is primarily for the relief of the poor. It's the relief of the poor. I'm not going to take the time. I was going to take the time and look at a bunch of verses with you, but I'm not going to do that. You can check that on your own. But it was very much woven in. It's what it meant to be. And by the way, that carried into the New Testament church. All through the book of Acts, you'll see in the New Testament there that, that relief of the poor it was a very high priority and high value to those first century Christians. Caring for those who were in need. It was expected of them. To do it was not to set yourself apart from anybody else. It was just part of what it meant to be a follower of the God of Israel. So, when you give to the poor, when you do what is common for people of faith, do not sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets so that they may be honored by men. Do not sound a trumpet. This is likely a metaphorical expression, and it, and it speaks to draw attention to yourself. We have our own metaphor there, right? Don't toot your own horn. Right? What Jesus is saying is when, when you do what is common to be done, don't call attention to yourself. Now, the origin of the expression, the sound of trumpet, I don't know. Some scholars think, and I'm inclined that way, at least it's interesting to me, is that it, it comes from the, the collection boxes that would be found in the temple, where, they, where there would be a trumpet-shaped opening in the top of the collection box, and that people would deposit their offerings into the, into the wide part of the funnel, as it were, and then it would go to the narrow, and they did it that way so people couldn't get their hands down into the box. Okay, So you'd throw a handful of coins, and they'd rattle around in the wide part of the trumpet, and then they would drop down into the box. And if you threw your coins just right, you could get a fair amount of noise. Sort of like driving through the toll booth, Right? I used to like to do that, see how fast I could go through the toll booth and still, right, I'm not alone in this, right? There's a little physics involved. You can, you know, you see me in this, right? As you toss your coin and, you know, it hits and off you go. When you miss, you have to stop the car and get out. It's a real embarrassment. 
Well, when you do that, it makes a really cool sound. All right, same idea. Okay? Toss your coins in the, in the top part of the benevolence box, let them rattle around, and as they fall on everybody around you, knows what you've just done. So maybe that's the origin of it. It's possible as well that there were actual literal trumpets blown. We know before feast days they would blow trumpets to summon the nation. We also know from history that benevolence giving was especially associated with feast days. It was a time when you were feasting to remember the poor. So it may be that that is the background behind this. So whether it's the actual you know, blowing of a trumpet or whether it's metaphorical speaking of the trumpet boxes in the, in the temple, certainly here in the synagogues and in the streets there's no, temple or there's no trumpet receptacles. In either case, the basic idea is that Jesus is, is criticizing the flashy manner by which people give. That's what he's after. They give in a flashy way so that they will be well thought of by others. They'll be well thought of. They do it in the synagogues, it says, and they do it in the streets. Maybe maybe in the synagogues it's it's the idea that someone who wants to give to the poor would, would stand up in the synagogue and would say, Whoever has need, come forward and let me help you. Maybe that's what was sort of happening there. Maybe out in the streets it was, a, it was kind of like uh, what we see sometimes going on in third world countries where, where an American, a wealthy American celebrity uh, travels to visit Calcutta, you know, and they bring an entourage with them and a, and a film crew, and they, they walk down a narrow alley where there's a lot of poor and beggars, and they make a very generous gift there, and of course it's all caught on film and sent back home for their supporters. That's sort of a more contemporary idea of what's going on here, but that seems to be the picture. Is that they're giving and what they're doing is good. It's just why they're doing it is the problem. Truly I say to you, Jesus says, they have their reward in full. That expression, truly I say to you, that's a It's a very solemn expression. Jesus is saying, listen carefully here. Pay attention to this. They've got what they were looking for. The reward has been rendered to them. To to pursue religious activity for the approval of men, when you receive the approval of men, you got what you were shooting for. It came to you. In fact, the the word he uses here, they have their reward in full. That little expression, in full, interesting word. It comes from the field of commerce. It would be a receipt that a merchant would stamp paid in full and then hand it to you. Nothing due, no, no open balance on the account. It's been paid in full. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying here. Listen, if you're looking to purchase the approval of men by your generosity, then when you get it, you get a receipt along with it that says, paid in full, you got everything you bargained for. A quote here from Bible commentator. He says, giving to the needy in order to receive publicity is not giving at all. It is paying for human approval and it forfeits divine approval. Simple transaction. Paid in full. Jesus goes on here and gives a prescription as how to approach this. Verse 3, but when you give to the poor, right? Notice that he doesn't say just don't give to the poor. That's the solution. No, when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. So that your giving will be in secret. Now this is hyperbole. I mean, it's obvious hyperbole, right? The left hand and the right hand are connected to the same body. You can't, you can't prevent that. But what Jesus is saying is, listen, our giving should be done in such a way that, that, that 
It was as if we could keep it secret from ourselves. We should so avoid human acclaim that we do it in a way that we can kind of conceal it from ourselves. Because if we could conceal it from ourselves, then then nobody could know, right? Boy, this goes against our culture. I walked into the hospital here a few weeks ago. Big, beautiful addition being put onto that local hospital, right? And there's a whole wall full of little brass plaques. And what do they have on those brass plaques? They have the names of those who have given. And and not only that, they arrange them depending on how much you give. That's the way we do it. It's the way we do it. Jesus warns us. He says, truly I say to you, if that's what motivated you, if it was to see your name up there, you got it. I hope it was worth ten grand to you for a you know a three inch square plaque, because that's what that's what you paid for. Really cuts in deep, doesn't it? What's going on inside? When that offering plate's going around, what's going on inside? Gives us a promise here, end of verse four. Your Father who sees what is done in secret, He will reward you. God is omnipresent, and so so no act is secret from Him. See, even if you could keep your left hand from knowing what your right hand was doing, you couldn't keep God from knowing. And so Jesus says, listen, God sees what you're doing. Don't don't worry. There's no act of righteousness that's going to go unrewarded. In fact, you're going to get the reward that endures, a heavenly reward. In the context here of the Sermon on the Mount and Matthew's Gospel, it's talking about the establishment of Messiah's kingdom. That's when the reward will come. That's when the reward will come. You know, when Messiah establishes his kingdom, there's going to be a need for a gigantic bureaucracy to run the government. Paul tells us that we who are the followers of Christ, we are part of that. Bureaucracy, 1 Corinthians 6. Faithful in little, faithful in much, right? We are faithful in the secret things of this life, in the life to come. There will be rewards. False generosity, he says. Verse 5, false dependency. False dependency. When you pray... You are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. The situation here is is assumed prayer, because prayer was very much a part of the life of what it meant to be a Jew. The Jewish people had a number of fixed times of prayer throughout their day. They were expected to to recite the Shema twice a day. That's that's Deuteronomy 6, right? 4 through 9. Their great confession of faith. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one, right? So they were expected to recite that twice a day. In the morning and in the evening. Beyond that, they, they had certain prescribed prayers before meals. Now, the Pharisees had had gotten it down to the point where they had actually contemplated, and I'm glad they did this because this will resolve it for the rest of you out there who wonder, do I pray before this food or not? Right? Okay, how many of you besides me have ever asked yourself that question? Right? Do I have to pray before the chips and salsa before the meal begins, or or can I wait till the meal, right? Come on. Yeah, you're out there. Well, if, don't worry, the Pharisees figured it out. If the food is larger than the size of an olive, then you have to pray. <laughs> right? They figured it out for you. See, our heart's just like theirs. We ask the same questions they asked. 
They just came up with a definitive answer. So they prayed before every meal, and, and depending on what was on the menu, the prayer would vary. There was a prayer for meat and a prayer for vegetables and a prayer for fruit and so forth. They had it all worked out. Beyond that, they, they had what was called the, the, the 18 benedictions. And this was to be prayed three times a day, morning, afternoon, and evening. And the prayer was to be given while facing Jerusalem and, and while being focused upon the Holy of Holies in your heart. This was the proper way to pray. And they weren't kidding around. They were really serious about this. They were serious about prayer. Frequently they stood to pray. Sometimes they kneeled. And, and it's, even in, in times of extreme grief, they would prostrate themselves. They would lie out pray. But standing was the typical prayer posture. So what Jesus is criticizing here back in verse 5 is not the posture of prayer. It's not the standing that's the problem. It's the, it's the purpose of the prayer, and that is to be seen by men. When you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray. Okay? It's not the standing that's the problem. It's the praying in public such, such as that. Notice it says, um, in the synagogues and on the street corners, interesting there, street corners, there's the idea of the large parts of town where the streets are wide, where the billboards are, the best advertising spots. That's where they like to stand and pray. Now, it was Jewish custom that that when it was the hour of prayer, that everyone was to stop wherever they were, whatever they were doing, turn and face Jerusalem, sort of focus on the Holy of Holies, and pray. If you're out in public, you stop, you turn, you pray. The afternoon prayers, the morning prayers, the evening prayers. So you kind of get the idea from this is, is that the, the hypocrites would somehow manage to be in the right place at prayer time. They love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners to be noticed by men. Grammatically here, it's the, the, the love to pray comes after the, the, the perfect participle that they, they stand. And so the idea is they, they, they stand and then they love to pray. They arrange where they're going to be when it's time to pray. Why do you want to be on the wide street? Simple answer, right? So you'll be noticed by men. So you'll be noticed by men. So what had been designed to be a communion with God becomes a, a means of increasing their reputation among men. All right. Thinking about this this morning. This is sort of the danger in Tebowing. If I can say it that way. All right, everybody knows what T-bowing is, right? If you don't, you have been in a cultural cave for the last two years. So you can go home and look it up. But I think there's a danger in T-bowing. And the danger is that it's the public posture of kneeling to pray can sort of overwhelm the real purpose of prayer. Now, I'm not making any statement about the motives of Tim Tebow. Okay, please understand that. I do not know the man. My, what I've read about him is he is a devout Christian man. So I'm not making any statements about him. I'm just suggesting that one could pray just as effectively standing on the sidelines without kneeling. But it's absolutely certain that when you kneel, you will be noticed. You will be noticed. What does Jesus say to us? Beginning of verse 6. But you, when you pray, you go into your inner room. Close your door and pray to your Father who is in secret. Now, Jesus does not oppose public prayer. In fact, in verses 9 through 15, he's going to teach a public prayer. Okay, so Jesus is not opposed to public prayer. Don't misunderstand that. 
Reality is measured not in the public prayer, but in the private prayer. The public prayer needs to be an overflow of the, of the reality of a private prayer devotion. Otherwise, the public prayer is only a sham. If the praying only happens publicly, it's not happening privately, then the public display is just that, a display. The way to purify the motives, Jesus said, is to pray faithfully in private. He says in the inner room, right? Inner room. Go into your inner room. Inner room was a, would be a, a place in the house that had no windows. It wouldn't be on an outside wall. It would be like a closet or a storeroom. Go in there, close the door, so you're out of eye shot and out of ear shot, and then pray. Now again, I think he's, he's sort of speaking metaphorically here. Not every one of his disciples is going to be wealthy enough to have a home that has an inner storeroom in which they can go into. So he's not prescribing that you have to build in your house. Honey, we've got to add on to the house. Why? Well, because the Master said we need to have this windowless inner room. That's not the point. What he's saying is, is that you need to pray privately in such a way that you are not overheard by others, which will help to purify your motives and, and relieve you from the temptation of performing while you pray. When we pray alone, we can be honest with God, right? We can actually express our fears. We can express our hopes. We can express our concerns. And we don't have to worry what other people think about us. How many of you have ever gone to to prayer meeting and resisted praying because you were afraid somebody would think you were stupid when you voiced your prayer? You don't have to raise your hands. I know you're out there. Boy, I can't, I can't pray like that, so I'm not going to pray at all. See, when we find ourselves doing that, we're, we're approaching it in the wrong direction. We're, we're, it's a performance thing now. Pray in secret. Your Father who sees in secret the promise here, right? He will reward you, just like charitable giving. God will reward an intentional and honest devotion and dependency in prayer. Third. Third example is false piety. False piety. So we have false generosity. We have um, false prayer and we have false piety. Now the word piety is such a good word that I'm refusing to allow it to pass out of common English usage. Okay? Because I need it, it rhymes really well, and I intend to continue to use it, not to mention the fact that it's a really good word. So the word piety, if you do not know what it means, it means religious devotion. It means religious devotion. Spirituality is the word piety, P-I-E-T-Y. Use it a few times. Your friends will be impressed. And God won't, right? (laughs) But at least they'll be part of your vocabulary. So, false piety. Verse 16. Whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. So like these other spiritual disciplines of giving and praying, fasting was an important part of the religious life of the nation of Israel. There was mandatory public corporate fasts, and then there were private fasts. For example, the Day of Atonement, according to Leviticus 23, verses 27 to 32, you can check it on your own, was to be marked by a time of self-denial. And that self-denial included fasting in a number of ways, but not the least of which was a fasting from food. It was a public fast associated with the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. 
everybody fasted. There were private fasts as well. You would fast as a time of personal grief, associated with your personal grief. Your, your desire for food would, would become so secondary that you would embark on a private fast, a time of usually if prayer is associated with it, but it would be a time of focus, intense concentration upon the Lord because of grief. Sometimes these fasts were associated with prayer in an attempt to discern the will of the Lord. We see that in Acts chapter 13 and chapter 14 in the choosing of leadership, the early church. Now, interestingly, the New Testament has no explicit instruction on fasting. It just simply mentions it. And in the epistles, it doesn't mention it at all. So fasting was very much a part of the Jewish culture, not so much a part of ours. To fast was to be a devoted Jew. It was expected, just like charitable giving, just like prayer. Now, the situation that Jesus is talking about here, where he says, whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face, so you'll be noticed by men. It can't be associated with the, with the, national, excuse me, the national public fast, can it? Because if it's a national public fast and everybody's doing it, then obviously there's nothing to, to be hidden. So it's not that. It's got to have something else in mind here. I think one of the commentators that I read really kind of locked onto it. What he spoke of was the, the possibility that Jesus is referring to private fasts here that were associated with the need for rainfall. So it kind of went like this. Israel is, is highly dependent upon its seasonal rains, just like Southern California. It was an agrarian society, and that is they depended upon the ability to grow their own food from the ground. They needed the rains in order to bring the crops for harvest. So drought was not merely an inconvenience. Drought was a national emergency. Drought produces famines. So what, what apparently they had developed was this system that if the rains were delayed, that the leadership would go to a certain select group of individuals who were, who were considered very pious individuals, and they would ask them to fast and pray privately for rainfall. If, after a period of time, the rain still did not arrive, then they would declare a public national fast. It would be a time of national mourning and crisis, and the whole nation would be called to fast. So if that is what's behind this, and I think it makes a lot of sense of it, then there are these individuals in society here who, are, who become Israel's first line of defense against drought. They are the prayer warriors of the nation of Israel, privately fasting and praying for the rains. So it's easy to see how these silent prayer warriors now could, could subtly uh, could, um, desire to be known. Right? It would be a very, very subtle thing. You're the private prayer warrior, but nobody knows. You're the private prayer warrior. You're laboring away, fasting for the rains to come. You're the front line of defense. You're the, you're the special forces troop for the nation of Israel in a spiritual sense, and nobody knows it. So what better way to, to let somebody know how pious you are than to neglect your appearance while you're fasting? So you can sort of envision the conversation. It goes something like this. Brother, you don't, you don't look like you feel too well today. Is everything okay? Yeah, I'm, I'm fine. I'm fine. Are you sure? You, you look like you're, you don't feel well. Well, I feel kind of faint. Well, do you need something to eat? No, I can't eat. Well, what, what do you mean you can't eat? Well, see, I'm fasting so that God will send rain upon the nation. Oh, you must be a special person to be chosen to fast on behalf of the nation. Well, my friends do say that I walk closely with God. <laughs> now, I don't know if they'd say that part, but... 
right? I mean, look what Jesus says. They neglect their appearance so they will be noticed by men. You know, they, they just kind of look haggard, like they're suffering. And that, and that provokes the inquiry. Yeah, I'm suffering for Jesus. Wow. It was Jesus prescribed for this. Verse 17, beginning of 18. But you, when you fast, look what you're supposed to do. Anoint your head and wash your face so your fasting will not be noticed by men. Kind of a modern translation. You, when you fast, put on makeup. (laughs) Bathe. Change your clothes. Comb your hair. Look as normal as possible so that nobody knows that you're suffering for Jesus. That you're making a great sacrifice for the work of God. The promise says that your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. I told you, we don't, we don't have to participate in fasting for this one to go home. How insidious it is. Suffering for Jesus. Pastor, you look tired. Yeah, I'm tired. How come you're so tired? I'm a busy guy. A lot of meetings. A lot of people. Problems. Wow, Pastor. Thank you. That's okay. Doing it for Jesus. Right? You can just get drawn into this thing so easily. So easily. You know the crazy thing is that if you, when you get drawn in, it says you, you got what you wanted. You got what you wanted. Real bummer. Because <laughs> it ain't much. Really thought about how to try to apply this. I spent a fair amount of time this week actually trying to think through specific applications, and I tore up the paper that I had them written on. Because I thought, you know what? I think the best is to pray that the Spirit of God would really search our hearts. The really crevice places, you know, the parts of the closet that nobody goes. Rather than me come up with a list of issues with regard to giving, where you need to check your motives in your giving, you know, and in prayer and, and even your religious duties and devotions. Rather than me try to list out a whole bunch of stuff. And we can sit there and go, yeah, well, I'm okay here, and I'm okay here, and I'm okay here, and I'm okay here. And pretty soon it loses its value. But just let the Spirit of God bore down in. Listen, giving, praying, religious duty and devotion, these are common things. Common things. Jesus says that the reason you do it makes all the difference in eternity. So may the Spirit of God probe my heart and yours. Let's pray. Father, Jesus really zeroes in here and gets to the issue of the heart. He does it in such a way, Father, that None of us can escape if we will but take a few minutes to do a little self-inspection. So I pray that your Holy Spirit would enable us to do just that. And our Father, when we do, we are bound to see those places where we fall short. We ask you to flood us with your grace. That you would not... Allow us to descend into despair and depression when we look at ourselves and see how far short we come. 
but that instead you would remind us that we are forgiven in Christ, that your Spirit dwells within us, that we have all that is necessary for life and godliness available to us, and that real and meaningful change can happen. Our Father, Jesus doesn't give us these things just to put us under condemnation. He gives us these things because He loves us. He desires us to walk in a humble obedience to Him. So may You help us to apply this message, each and every one of us, in the way that is most needful. We pray in Jesus' sake. Amen. Beloved, I want to add my best wishes for your Father's Day. I hope you're going home and having something wonderful with your family. It's indeed a privilege to be able to enjoy that here, isn't it? God bless you. Have a great Sunday.